who we are. Well, once again, I ask you to turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark. We're back there. Two weeks ago, while out enjoying the weather and a picnic, we saw Jesus interact with the religious laws of the day. Three responses came out of that interaction. Legalism, license, and Lord. Legalism trusted too much in our own abilities. License pushed our own desires too far. But Lord, the Lord placed us on the cross with Jesus Christ. We found that Jesus kept the law for us perfectly and turned the law into a joy instead of a burden. This week, Mark places Jesus in front of a large crowd, not just these religious leaders and others. While the religious and political leaders watch every action that Jesus does, and instead of questioning Jesus or rebuking Jesus for what was said, they remain silent. Not a word is given by any of them in our passage. What can be said of these leaders? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they sat back in silence and watched as Jesus broke the law. They also sat back in silence and watched as a man suffered in front of them. Why were they silent? Why were they gripped with such inactivity? Were they uncaring? Did they have fear? Were they uninterested? I don't think so. The leaders did all that they could to help the sick and the suffering. They really did. There were social systems in place done by the Herodians to help the poor as best they could. There were religious laws set up by the Pharisees to help the hungry. They were adamant defenders of the law. What could it be? What caused them to sit in silence during this miraculous event? They were more interested in destroying Jesus than in seeing what the truth was. The poor and the needy have been there before. The law has been broken by countless people. The leaders spoke up or acted out on any other occasion, but this one, Jesus, well, that's a different story. He was something far more dangerous. They knew he had to go. And so these passive leaders turned into silent sinners. Now, before you go nodding in your head, agreeing and appreciating this critique of the Pharisees, read this passage again and think about your own life. Where are you confronted by this passage? When have you been confronted by the truth and can't accept it? When did you run into someone in need and do nothing? Have you met a leader that you just, you just don't like? What did you do? Did you sit back in silence? Did you judge, not looking to grow, not looking to appreciate? Did you look to destroy or to undermine? All of us are the silent sinners in this passage. All of us are. And so we need to listen closely. We need to listen about these three characteristics that define these silent sinners. First is suspicion then hard-heartedness, and finally it ends with pride. Those will be our three points this morning, suspicion, hard-heartedness, pride, characteristics of silent sinners. We'll find that each of these characteristics are confronted, they're broken down by Jesus Christ. Though the leaders do not confess and submit to the Savior, we, we silent sinners, can come to Christ. We can confess, we can find ourselves in desperate need of a Savior. 
and find mercy and love in our silent, sinful states. That said, let's jump into that first point, suspicion. Our passage begins as most passages begin when Jesus gets in trouble. He's in the synagogue on a Sabbath. Just how it always happens. Now, for those who don't know, describe it again. The Sabbath is the one day a week set aside for the worship and reflection of God. It's grounded in the creation story of Genesis 1. After God created all things in six days, he rested on the seventh day. Man is called to rest and worship God. It's in the Ten Commandments. The law was built around it. One day a week, man is to rest and worship God. It's for his benefit and for the glory of God. The synagogue on the other side was the place everyone gathered on the Sabbath. I could make the illusion that it was the church of our day, because everyone in town was there. It's what you do on a Sunday. This was a Sabbath. It was a Saturday. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work with our modern day. Churches are actually emptying out. They're not full. It's not the place to be on Sunday morning. So you have to ask, what is the town square? What's the town square of Sunday morning? Brunch, probably. Find a hip restaurant that serves pancakes, locally sourced egg white omelets, and bottomless mimosas for far more than you would ever have to pay for any of those things before. And that's where you'll find your mass of people. That's where you'll find the town square. That's where you'll find people gathering around. Just as a side note for this, that's why we're here in this building right now, actually. There's no better town square in Cedar Rapids than the Nubo Square in Czech Village. There are at least three restaurants around here. These two neighborhoods that serve brunch, they always draw a crowd. They're here because it is as close to the town square as we could possibly be. And the church's prayer is our presence and community will attract some wandering eyes as they go to pick up their bottomless mimosas. It's also why we're in Beaver Park. Back in the picnic time, next to the pool, it's where so many people gather around. That's where they're going to be going in July. It's why our community events will be in public spaces. In order to be heard, we need to be seen. We don't want to hide the truth away from the world, and that's where we are. Out in front, on the stage. Nevertheless, I'm getting off track. The Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was a place to be if you were a Jew in the first century Galilee. Matthew and Luke tell us that he taught before he actually saw the man with the withered hand uh, and before he even called him up or confronted any of the leaders. But really, before we get ahead of ourselves and deep dive into the story, we have to ask about these leaders. What has been going on over the last two chapters? The leaders have been knocked around lately. The stories Mark has given us show some leaders, some decided victories against the leaders. Jesus was beating them in logic, in love, in law-keeping. He's hitting them hard in every area of their lives. They've been beaten all over Galilee, from the synagogue into the fields, all the way out to the wilderness, and then into the homes of sinners. They are just taking every hit. The leaders are fighting a losing battle, it seems. As a result, they've grown uh, rather unhappy, I would guess. Angry, even. They've abandoned the frontal assault on Jesus, decided to just become watchers. That's where they are. Verse 2 tells us that they watched Jesus as he entered in, as he taught. Why? 
outside of their fear of confronting him, it's because they've already decided his fate. He needs to go to jail. He needs to be put to death. He needs something bad. He needs to get out of the public square and get away from people. So they need to get something on him. Something that they can hold on to. Some tangible peace. They can't keep approaching him and trying to talk him into describing what a sin is he's doing. He's too smart for that. And so they watch him. They watch him with suspicion. They're looking for some crack in the armor to bring him down. The second half of verse 2 says, They watched to see if he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is the first characteristic of the silent sinner. Suspicion. They're judging every little move Jesus does to see what they could get on him. Every little piece. Any strange word or teaching, any healing or action, the leaders are ready to pounce on him. All doing in order to answer an unsaid question. To answer the question of who is this Jesus Christ? They wanted to know, and they wanted to get him. They wanted to know if he was going to rule, if he was going to take over, if he was going to fall apart. What was going to happen in this world? And they were watching very closely. Now, to deal with some thoughts coming up in your mind right now, no, suspicion isn't a sin itself. Right? To be suspicious of someone is uh, really encouraged in the New Testament. John, Paul, and Peter all call on the church to judge the teachers that appear in their churches. It says, be a little suspicious. Read what they're saying. Understand what's going on. Judge according to the Holy Word what was given to them. That judgment, that suspicion, isn't necessarily wrong. But the leader's suspicion, well, that was towards a negative end. They wished to capture him. Prior to this moment, the rulers had never approached Jesus with a malicious nature. They never thought, I'm going to get him out of here. I want to destroy him. Their questions were often accusations, but they still traveled around with him, either to learn or to try and understand what was going on. They weren't looking to catch him at that time. But here, in this passage, the first time they have brought malicious intent prior to anything Jesus has done. They want to catch Jesus in some crime. They want him to fail. Really, in a far simpler way, you can say that they are not thinking the best of Jesus. They're not caring for him. They're not wishing well for him. There's no charity in their judgment or suspicion. In our modern context, we slip into this problem all the time. You can start with the church and we'll move on into the world real easily. The church has trouble trusting leaders. We do. Leaders, any speakers, anything really. Not without reason, mind you. There are plenty of examples of poor or egotistical driven leaders who have led people astray. Especially within the last years, we've seen leaders falter. I understand the suspicion at times. I really do. But when you are looking for reasons to dislike a speaker before they've even said anything, you just walk in ready to judge them, planning for the pastor to fail. That's, that's when we have some trouble. That's when you're stepping into some dark suspicion. A church may have some speaker come in. They may dress differently. They may use weird slang or have an accent. may have a different color of skin than you're used to. Ask yourself, do you become suspicious of that person? 
because of some small difference? Do you presume that you're going to talk about something questionable from the pulpit? Do you want them to talk about something questionable from the pulpit so you can catch them? Maybe you won't admit that to yourself. That's fine. It's all right. We can dig deeper. Here's an example. Right? Here's just primary example. I take a vacation one week, and Kyle's not around to lead. Instead, we bring someone in. We bring a seminarian in to preach. He's young, inexperienced. You're kind of like, who is this guy? You look it up online. Oh, he goes to this seminary. You start to hear rumors about what is being taught at this seminary. Or the seminarian has a reputation. You wonder, what's going on here? Now you're starting to worry. But you're willing to hear him out. You're willing to show up. You won't go visit another church at this point. But in preparation for the service, you decide to brush up on some things. You spend hours upon hours reading up on the teaching of the seminary. You put in articles critiquing all the strange positions being taught at this school or taught by this young man. You think, ooh, this is real weird. So when you show up to church on Sunday, you listen very closely. You want to hear every word. You want to be sure he doesn't drop one word out of line. Because if he does, you'll come down with the wrath of articles and the Bible because you are defending the gospel. That's what you would claim yourself to be. That's what I would claim myself to be. At that point, you've stepped into a world of malicious suspicion. And you may think this is kind of a funny picture I've created, that no one really actually believes that. No one would do that. The truth is, I've had that happen to me. I was the seminarian. There was a trap set for me without my knowledge. Not by a regular attender, but by an overzealous elder. I was cornered at lunch at his house that he invited me to. I was put through an examination, accused of not holding the core foundations of the faith. And I was treated harshly. He regretted it afterwards, right before I left, tried to hug me. It didn't work well. I want to encourage all of you, myself included, treat people charitably. Everyone who steps behind the pulpit will be judged according to the word of God, not be judged according to your accusations or presumptions. It's an easy sin for us Reformed Christians to walk into. We hold tightly to our theology. We love the word of God very deeply. We really do. But sometimes our knowledge becomes an idol. It really may be as simple as listening more intently than you normally do. Just because you want to wonder, what is up going on here? What's he really saying? And you're hoping that you can confront him. We judge so quickly without stopping and praying. Praying that the word of God would be spoken truthfully and clearly. That's how you walk into a service in a church. Whether it be some crazy church that you walk through and you go, I have no idea what's going on here, or someone that you're very comfortable with. Pray every time someone steps up to the pulpit that the word of God would be heard clearly and truthfully. Pray for me. Pray for Kyle. Pray for whoever may be leading the service that week. Pray for any of our readers. It will turn our hearts from a suspicion to hope. Hope that the word of God would come clearly. Hope that the truth would reign out. That the voice of the speaker would be pushed away and the voice of God would be heard. That's what prayer would push us towards. Now, when it comes to the world, 
Malicious suspicion is it's quite prevalent, honestly. The world looks to all authority with suspicion, generally. They'll judge anyone who is placed above them, secretly hope for them to fail, either to replace them or just to watch the spectacle of watching someone in authority fail. The largest television audiences are the ones generally watching impeachment trials. We tell ourselves it's because this is a momentous occasion. Oh my goodness. But really, it's because it's so grand to watch the leader of the free world stripped from office. What a spectacle. The same is true for any area of authority or fame. Teachers, coaches, athletes, celebrities, pastors, even God. The world walks in. The world sees God not as a caring creator who has given us his son for salvation. No, they see him as someone who is looking to catch us in our sin. Waiting and watching for us to slip up so we can say, ah, ah, there it is, there it is, got it. I got you, off to hell you go. They're suspicious of God. And as a result of all this, the world finds themselves in relationships that are just fearful, waiting to fall apart. Because they wonder, when will they be unfairly judged? And they turn it around and they turn it against them and say, I'm going to unfairly judge you before you judge me. I'm going to be suspicious of what's going on. And relationships fall apart on suspicion. This is a culture of suspicion in the world. Full of quick judgment. But what does Christ do? What does Christ do with these suspicious rulers watching his every move? He knows they're there. Does he slink away in fear? Does he act very prim and proper, making sure he's following all the lines, not to offend? No. No. He steps forward and he addresses their suspicion. He shows them exactly who he is, the one who will love and heal those in pain. The one who cares for the cast-offs and the unwanted, even if this confirms their suspicions, their suspicions were wrong. The truth is far more important than their malicious suspicion. Christ confronts them. That brings us to our next point. Hard-heartedness. So the silent sinners were watching in suspicion of Christ, waiting to catch him in the act. And they're about to get exactly what they want. A spectacle. They want to use his new power against him. Verse 3 takes us to the next characteristic. Christ knows he's being watched. He knows their suspicions about him, and like the leaders, he has a memory of their previous interactions. Their problems with his teaching. He has decided to give them their spectacle. But only to point out their next fault, their hard hearts. And so he brings the man with the withered hand forward. He says, come forward, come here. And he turns to the leaders and he asks them two vital questions. First, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Second question, to save a life or kill? Now you may think these questions are meant to judge the leaders for their internal sins. After all, they're not helping this man with a withered hand. They're planning to destroy Jesus Christ, to kill him. But actually, these two questions are meant to open their hearts. Help them understand their sin and realize their faulty view of the law. He's put this injured man into the center of a religious discussion. What takes precedent? 
Helping people or following after the law? If Jesus heals this man, is he doing a good, even though it goes against the Sabbath law? It's a tough question for the leaders to deal with. Because they do want to help this man. As I said before, the leaders care about the poor and the needy. They aren't some evil character looking to step on the weak and the downtrodden. But they have a very strict approach to how things should be done. Working on the Sabbath is a great violation of the law. So what are they to do when they're placed into this position? This dichotomy that they think has to happen. They ignore the man. They may help him in other days, but today is not the day to help this man. They also ignore the questions offered by Jesus. At the end of verse 4, it tells us that they were silent to the questions. The silence frustrates Jesus. How could these teachers of the law miss such a crucial moment? How is it that after all their study of the law, they could not see the benefits of doing good? This is the second characteristic of the silent sinner. Hardness of heart. They're so wrapped up in their own law-abiding strictness that they miss the obvious need in front of them. The man with the withered hand is in need of help. He's in need of kindness and care. The religious leaders cannot do anything for him because they do not see helping him as being good on that particular day. The hardness of heart that Jesus is angry and grieved over is not only their inability to understand the law and the legalism that they're holding on to, it's also their unwillingness to be moved by the suffering of another person. They're unmoving as a stone. They have no compassion. They have no love or care for those in need. Their silence shouts loudly how little they care for the people around them. They're as warm as a stone in a well. Christ says elsewhere, love of God and love of neighbor sum up the entirety of the law. The religious leader's inability to see the problem right in front of their eyes, the man with the withered hand, has caused them to miss the idea of loving their neighbor. This is where the mind is so twisted. This is where we really have struggles. Right? They keep seeing the law as this strict. They're holding to it. They're keeping the law this strict. Showing their love of God. They think, this is what it is. I have to love God this way. They think not helping this man is actually loving God better than helping him. The silence of the leaders is like watching the Pharisee step over the injured man on the road. In the story of the Good Samaritan. They want to shout at them to go and help him, but they do not wish to violate the law. At this point, you ask the question, can you imagine the mental gymnastics it takes to get there? The obvious answer is yes. Yes, we can. We can absolutely understand the mental gymnastics, because we do this at the church, too. We sit idly by while those in need are ignored or not cared for. We think we can drop a check into the box, and we've done enough to care for the world. Our theology can be so warped, we think that the church or the state can take care of the needy. We don't need to get our hands dirty. Why would we need to do that? We become handcuffed by our faith and our understanding of the social nets, and suddenly our hearts become hardened to care for people. 
What did Jesus say? When you fed and clothed and gave drink to the needy, you did it also to me. Where are you finding yourself in this hard-hearted nature? Are you shouting at the religious leaders? Do you find yourself sitting in silence while other people are being stepped over or stepped on? Where can our voice be used to advocate for those who have no voice? Where can our hands be used to help up those who have not stood on their own? Christians and the church should be the ones to care for people in need. We should be the ones to help people on the side of the road. We should be the ones to voice opposition to unfair treatment, to oppression. Don't let your heart be hardened to the truth. Christ came to save the world and give us a small picture of the kingdom of God. The church is that small picture of the kingdom of God. It looked like healing the withered man's hand. That's what Jesus did. Even while the religious and political leaders sat in silence. This is why Jesus Christ is the only way to find true joy and relief from sin, from hardship. He speaks out against the silent sinners and yet also cares for them. He brings in pictures of the kingdom of God. And when we are needy or when we are silent... He calls to us and he says, come, join me. You can find forgiveness here. You can find peace here. I will bring you salvation. I will give you rest. I will give you a voice. How amazing is Jesus Christ? He knows the malicious suspicion of the people. And he still wishes to change their hearts. He cares for the people who hate him. And the people who are physically sick. He goes so far as to die for those people. Jesus Christ is the only way to find hope for a hard heart. Either through sin or through need, trust in him and you will find salvation. But the religious leaders didn't respond to his call. They watched in silence as the man's hand was healed, and instead of their hearts softening at such a miraculous event, pride came through. A third point. Now, we would think, all of us, that seeing a miraculous event would change our mind. It'd shock and awe us out of our suspicion and our hard-heartedness. It would make us think differently about the world, realize these things can happen, and that the one who performed the miracle could be someone who is amazing, someone maybe to be worshipped. Unfortunately, I don't believe that to be true. <laughs> the leaders watched Jesus with suspicion, and they hardened their hearts after his questions, but they saw a man's hand restored. A confirmation of all the things that had been spoken of previously. And they're amazed by it. And as a result of it, they doubled down in their sin. They no longer felt suspicion because their greatest fears were confirmed. He is someone who needs to stop. And it pushed them to a new low. Verse 6 of our passage tells us, After the man's hand was healed, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians so that they could find a way to destroy Jesus. Now, this is the first time Bart brings up the eventual death of Jesus Christ. It's a momentous occasion. Not just because of the reference of the death of Jesus Christ. It's a momentous occasion because the political and religious world have joined hands in perfect harmony to come to one end. Let's kill a guy. 
See, the Pharisees loathed the Herodians. They hated them. They were followers of Herod, the puppet king appointed over Israel to act as a liaison and ruler over the, the Jews. The Pharisees did not like being ruled over. They didn't want to be. They especially did not like being ruled over by the Romans. But when shown something truly miraculous, a man's hand is healed. When questioned about their hard-heartedness, they abandon their prejudice, not against the person who is sick or against the teacher who just did the miraculous thing. They abandon their prejudice against the political actors of the day. They say, we need to work together to kill a man. <laughs> Why? Why are they pushed so far? Sin, yes, but he's offending religious laws by healing on the Sabbath. That's what they would say to themselves. He's gaining such a following, he may start undermining the political power of the day. The two camps were not foolish. They understood the danger of Jesus Christ. Just a few hundred years ago, there was the Maccabean Revolution, where a Jewish ruler rose up an army to fight off the Roman army. It didn't go well. But the biggest problem for these silent sinners isn't really political religious revolution. It really was their pride. Their pride to think that this is the way things need to be. They say nothing throughout the whole interaction. The first moment in which they can to be described as talking with someone else is them planning to kill a man. They are so sure of their position, so sure of their righteousness, that when they were confronted by something completely different, they could only think, this man must be stopped. It's pride reigning, reigning in their lives. They do not want to give up their leadership positions. They don't want to admit maybe they were wrong in their teaching. Just a few verses down in this chapter, we can see that the actual position the rulers take, it's seen in verse 22, the scribes confront Jesus while he is healing and casting out demons. And they say to him, he is casting out demons or those possessed by demons under the power of Satan. That's their pride. They accuse Jesus of being one who follows after Satan, not one who goes after God. There's no way that God would give this man power to heal or cast out demons to teach the truth. He must have gained it all through demons. And the only righteous act is to have this man killed to prevent further corruption of the people. It's the response of a group who are deep in sin, convinced of their own rightness. Not accept anything that's different from their own understanding. But I ask you not to judge these religious rulers too harshly. Again, I remember, I want to encourage you. They are us, we are them. How quickly do we dismiss people that are different? How often do we trust in our own understanding instead of trusting in Christ? Make no mistake, the church is full of prideful people, myself included. So often our confidence is in our mind, can detract from detract us from trusting in Christ, realizing Christ has saved us. It's not by our own mental work, not by our own works at all. It is by Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. In the world, the world simultaneously loves and hates pride. A person with confidence and with pride in themselves is attractive 
It's a great leader. But when proven wrong or are confronted by another position, a prideful person can become bullheaded, unmoving. They lose their popularity in just a quick second when they fall into that trap. But again, this is where I want us to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. Where we can be suspicious and judgmental, Christ is welcoming and loving. He looks on those in need with kindness. He even looks on the leaders with care and with humility. He doesn't just call them out. He asks them questions. It's probing. It's trying to draw them in. Two questions trying to get them to understand their faults. He didn't write them off performed a miracle to show them that they were wrong, and even at the end of the interaction, when they left to go plan his murder, he still didn't write them off. This is chapter 3. We have 13 more chapters to go. He's still going to be talking to these people, knowing full well that they are going to try and kill him and succeed at that. Jesus Christ is humble and loving and patient This is the wonderful news of the gospel. While we wander around in our silent sinfulness, Jesus Christ has come to shout to us, we are forgiven. While we are suspicious and hard-hearted and proud, Christ welcomes us, softens our heart, and makes us humble. All by showing us his true love and his death on the cross. That's right. The Pharisees and the Herodians who planned to destroy this man didn't realize that they were planning the greatest love act ever. The healing of the man with the withered hand was just a picture of the great healing that will occur in all who believe. Yes, our hands may not be withered, but our hearts are hardened and our pride is overwhelming. And yet Christ comes and softens our heart. And he strips away our pride because of his humble and loving sacrifice. Church, come to Jesus Christ, the one who speaks out for the needy and saves the silent sinners. He will bring you forgiveness and peace through the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your good word. Encouragement to know that your Son is one who does not turn away from silent sinners, but rather loves them and cares for them. Bring us to the cross that we may find forgiveness. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.